in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today, did you write this, Patrick? Joining me today is my better-looking co-host, Patrick Fester. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Thank you. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I have to uh, proofread our show notes next time <laughs> we do this. Before we get any further, if you like the show, do me a favor. Can you just give us a review in iTunes? It takes three minutes at the most. It's the best, easiest, quickest way for you to support the show. So go out there and give us reviews. As usual, Patrick, today we have a guest, and we actually have a special guest today. We do. We have Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Feeling special. <laughs> How you doing, Ryan? <laughs> well, the truth is, I think we call all our guests special. Uh, do we ever say special average anymore. best? Yes? Yeah, there are no. our below or subpar guest today <laughs> is. Yeah. Today we have a regular guy, but we'll go and let him talk for a few yeah. minutes. So, Ryan, before we get started talking about what you do with the Texas Railroad Commission, which is a fascinating story in itself, how did you get started in this crazy industry? You know, I graduated from high school in the Irving area, and my father and mother were both science teachers. Dad was a physics teacher. Mom was a chemistry teacher. So I always had a passion for science, knew I was going to go into science. Went to A&M. Whoop. There you go. <laughs> and uh, class of 97 and studied mechanical engineering. At the time, you know, going through school, didn't realize the oil and gas business was would be where I'd end up. But graduated and, you know, that that's who recruits at A&M. I mean, you look at where probably two thirds of the engineers at A&M end up going is into the oil business or petrochemical business or heavy industry business. Uh, got recruited out, went to Oxy, my first job out of school and boom, that was it. And the rest of my career has been, been in the business, worked for Oxy, worked for Marathon, both production companies, actually spent time both upstream and downstream with both companies. And then started my own company in 2006, uh, engineering and technology company. Was really blessed. The company just took off. And um, by you know 2010 timeframe, 2012 timeframe, we were, we were really doing well. Started to get exposure to politics and soon felt the, the call, hey, you know, someone with a, a technical background really understands what's happening in the energy space. We, we need that in public service. And I had been fortunate to, to get the ability to do that because of our business. And here I am today. Wow. So I didn't realize. So that's actually awesome. So you have exposure both to upstream production and then basically turning uh, hydrocarbons into products that you can sell. So literally the complete value chain, finding it, getting out the ground, and then turn it into stuff you can sell and selling it. Absolutely. That's a rare, rare, rare. It's one of the things during this last downturn I was so amazed at is a lot of the downstream companies, especially petrochemicals and ethylene crackers, were desperate for like skilled labor, welders and pipe fitters and machinists. But all the guys that got laid off from the upstream service companies never thought to go look there. Right. And they just kept it's, looking it's at It's funny. We don't cross sectors. We, yeah. we stay in our, our it lane. It is true. You know, that happened more in the last, not actually just this last downturn. It actually happened the, the previous one as well. So in the 2000, in, in uh, you remember in 
in the recession, the Great Recession, 2009, 2010. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. There was a downturn then as well. Oil prices, they didn't last long, but they, they went into the tank for a little while. And for that two-year span, a lot of the big companies kind of put the brakes on, not sure what's going to happen. Oil prices, I think, got all the way down to like the 30s at that point, maybe even in the 20s. And you saw a lot of people saying, hey, because they, they hadn't been in the oil business a long time at that point. We'd really only seen the resurgence in Texas for like the previous three years. You know, 07, 08, things were getting started. Everyone's getting fired up jobs everywhere. You're starting to hear killer numbers. Oh, I'm graduating from college. Got a hundred thousand dollar a year salary right. with XYZ company. Bam, 2010, 2009, you know, things start to turn around. And so we saw a lot of people starting to jump over into downstream that lasted a couple of years, but then when things started to come back in 11, 12, they went back in the upstream at this point, they, they stayed. And so you're right in, in the more recent 2015, 16 downturn, there wasn't as much of that, uh, not as much going and looking in the, in the downstream portions or the pipeline industry. Yeah, it's funny, whatever section you grew up in, you think that's the entire industry. You talk to a guy in pipelines, he thinks pipelines is oil and gas. It's all about yeah. transportation. Yeah. 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 You, you Talk to a guy that's uh, an ethylene cracker. It's all about natural gas turning into plastic. Talk to a guy that's doing exploration. It's all about yeah, spudding the well. It's not deep yeah. water drilling. It's nothing. That's yeah, yeah. There's another good one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It doesn't count unless it's deep water drilling. <laughs> yeah. Where, where's your background? Yeah. <laughs> you know what's really interesting about that is that you know a lot of people will talk about. I mean, even even really sophisticated operators will talk about the prominence of U.S. oil production right now. You know, obviously, Texas is a, is a game changer. Yeah, we went from... Permian's on fire right now. Yeah, and, and but even look at just total volumes. I mean, the fact that the Eagle Fur was producing you know nothing 10 years ago and was accounting at one point for a million barrels a day all by itself. So today, you know, the state of Texas is producing 4 million barrels a day of crude oil. And just under or just over 10 years ago, we were at a million barrels a day of crude oil. So we've added 3 million barrels a day of crude oil. And you ask guys in the upstream side, the producers, the oper- you know, they believe it's all about the oil business. And you have to remind them, you know, you can actually drill oil wells pretty cheaply in a lot of places around the world. And when you go to a, co- a country, say like Pakistan, Pakistan is really trying to grow its energy portfolio. The thing is, Pakistan says, hey, I can, I can go drill an oil well right across the border in Saudi Arabia or, or close to the border and build a pipeline, get it here really cheaply. The problem is, what do I do with it? I got to refine it. Well, if I don't have billions of dollars and a thousand people that know how to run a refinery, I'm, I'm in big trouble. So when you look at how the state of Texas really competes or the, the nation competes, it's not just oil production and it's not just pipelines. It's not just refining. It's not just import export capabilities. It's not just our cheap natural gas. It's all of those things combined. When you look at those as a sum total package, that's when no one in the world can hang with us. No yeah. one's even close. And that, that's, you got to really wrap your, your head around the fact that it's that sophistication, that infrastructure that allows us to really, I mean, if, if, if you look at this in kind of a free market way, if you, all the countries out there were their indiv- individual oil producers, Texas would be the, I mean, the United States and Texas would be the number one in the world by a, a healthy margin. No one's even close. Yeah, you know, I could really geek out with you. So you're right. The infrastructure is the vital part, and that that shale geology is all over the world. They just don't have the infrastructure in place to get it to market effectively like we do. Right. And it's another thing that's different is that here in the U.S., a lot of the mineral rights are owned by private individuals. That drives a different market as well as, as opposed to when the government owns the mineral rights. So we, we, I'm blessed to live in Texas. My favorite things is we're building pipelines as quick as we can to Mexico to get our natural gas over there. They have enough. They just can't get it out the ground. And it's cheaper for them to buy our gas to try to get there. I, I love that. Did um, you know, by the way, you meant, did you know that the United States is the only country in the world where a private individual can own minerals? It's the only country. I knew it was one of the few. I didn't know yeah, it was, I didn't the, know only it was the only one. one. There are a few places in the world where there are some heritage 
you know, individuals had owned minerals back in the day. Back in, in uh, let me get my dates wrong here. I think it was in like 1935 or something like that was when Mexico took all the minerals over and Pemex became the mineral owner. Prior to that, you individuals could own them. And so there's a, still a few places where there's some heritage owners. But today, only in the United States can an individual go and buy minerals. Nowhere else in the world can that happen. That That is it's hard to appreciate as you, as you mentioned, Mark, it's hard to appreciate the power of that, that, that individuals investing their resources, their time, their energy, them taking their own risks to go out and develop things. And I have sat on panels with regulators from around the world. And it's pretty cool. I'm sitting there, Ryan's sitting USA, you know, and there's people from, from Venezuela, from Mexico, from the UK. I just did this at zero week, not three or four weeks ago. And you hear people talk about regulation in a very bureaucratic way, right? They, they sort of see the world as, well, there's this group and this organization and this, this network of people all trying to do things, and it's our job to manage it all. You say, man, that's such a weird way to look at regulation. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if somebody out there is, is trying to produce a barrel of oil or a, or a BTU of natural gas, and, and they want to do that responsibly, they, they, they live in these communities. They want to be a good steward. Well, guess what? It's, it's because I think of it of how individuals will do things, how private ownership would do things. If you're just a gigantic government entity and you work for the government drilling an oil well, you have a very different mindset. Hence, everybody's got to manage each other. And and here in the United States is the only place that we have that unique visibility. And by the way, I think it's not shouldn't be lost on me. We're also the world's leading energy producer. Yeah. So it's a neat dynamic. It's funny you ran across it because this is one of the things that I I uh, ask people all the time. It's like, have you ever heard of a Chinese or Russian oil spill? And everybody says no. And I go, well, that means one of two things. They're either better at it than the American European operating companies, or they just don't tell. Which one do you think it is? But you're right. So here in the U.S., it's a different culture. Because we own the land or, or there's an aggregate where somebody's bought the mineral rights, they care. right? People live there. And so if something happens, large forbid, we'll go fix it. We clean it up. We make sure it's back to where it needs to be. You don't see that in the rest of the world. right? And I just think it's one of the cool things about an industry, especially here in the States. But Ryan, let me get, stay on this topic. So, yeah. how, how, as part of the American bureaucracy, do you marry that that rugged individualism in the oil and gas industry with what your job is? To you are there to you know regulate and enforce rules. So, you know, where is that balance for you when you're trying to make things better and safer, but still? Yeah, you use a really good word, Patrick, and I, I, the word balance. There is a perception out there, and, and I know you don't have this, but it's it's sort of it's sort of built into this word balance. And, and I do this a lot when I talk to, to more broad members of the media. They, they talk about the balance between allowing oil companies to operate, but also making sure that things are done right. And I say, wait a minute. You act as if those two things are in contradiction. And like I said, Patrick, I know that's not what you meant, right. but let me pick on this. It's like if, if I didn't exist, all these oil companies would go out there willy-nilly and, and you know, Katie bar the door, burn everything down, do everything I can to make a buck. And I can tell you from someone who has interacted with literally hundreds of companies, that I don't see that. Nope. That is probably one in, I don't know, one in a thousand. You'll, you'll come. I mean, there are shysters in every business, right? And there's certainly some in the oil business. And and my job is to take those guys out. There's no question. Carpet and by baggers, the, that's who, it. Who, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and you ask, and when people say, and I say, who do you think that's the best for? Like when I find the 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 one, you know, if there are, you know, ten thousand operators in the state of Texas, and let's say there's ten of them that are, are bad guys. And when I find them, I take them out. Who is that really, really good for? 
It's good for the rest of the industry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they want that. When I have conversations, people are shocked. I say, you know, every time I've met with someone who makes, say, a campaign donation or has a meeting with me and, and, and wants to talk about what's happening at the Railroad Commission, I've never once had somebody ask me for special treatment or to look the other way. What they ask me for is, hey, we want a good regulator who's going to make sure that the rules are followed. And when someone isn't following the rules to come down on them, this is people in the industry asking me for this. So what you find is our job as a regulator is to make sure that the people who we represent, in my case, it's the people of Texas feel comfortable with how the energy industry is operating. Now that no one likes a pipeline through their neighborhood or an oil well on their ranch, right? No one's going to like that. I'll take an oil well on my ranch. But, unless you own the minerals, right? Yeah, exactly. But if you're the service owner, no one's excited about that. But I might be okay with it as long as I know that it's safe and I know that they're not going to contaminate things. They're not going to tear things up. And who do I look to, to make sure that I say, well, it's a railroad commission. And if I know that that dork Ryan really is into this stuff and that he, he understands this business and he's looking at these issues and when issues happen, he is Johnny on the spot to make sure that it's getting taken care of. Then yeah, I feel good about this stuff. That's my job. And so most of the time, my job dealing with industry is, is fairly hands off. You guys do good business. Keep doing good business. If there's a problem, we'll talk about it. It's the very small group where you do run into problem, problem children, and then we got to be swift. Yeah, I want to back you up a little bit. We have a lot of listeners all over the world. Why is the Railroad Commission in charge of oil and gas and oh, hydrocarbon transportation? Mark, you Texas? hit an issue near and dear to my heart. All right, yeah, I didn't so, think we were going to talk about it, but I, no, it's good. Look, it's uh, as I told you, both my parents are teachers, right? And uh, that you got you just triggered the teacher in me. History class is about to start. Get your textbooks. In I'm gonna take a nap. Ex- <laughs> exactly. So I used to do a history class, so it fits. In 1891, the state of Texas created the Railroad Commission to regulate railroad rates. So imagine here, you know, at the at the tail end of that century, the biggest industry in the state was the railroad industry, and people were moving every product that they could via the railroads, and that was by far the cheapest way to move anything from, you know, oil to corn and wheat to livestock to wood. I mean, you name it, it was moved via railroads. The problem was, railroads were a monopoly because you know, people had built all these railroads, and so you could literally control the an entire industry based on what you charged in the railroad rates. So People would get gouged selling grain or wheat or whatever. So the Railroad Commission was created to protect that. If you, We set back in 1891, the Railroad Commission's first task was to set the rates that you could charge when you were transporting something on your train. 1915, the Railroad Commission gets its first responsibility for anything related to oil. And it was because, as you can imagine, the oil business is growing a lot. And they're like, man, we need to regulate some of this. And the legislature said, well, the Railroad Commission, the, the trains are moving a lot of that product. We'll have the Railroad Commission do it. In 1919, we got a very specific responsibility, which was the the ability to set proration levels. And if you want to stump your friends, by the way, Mark, you may have heard me talk about this before. Ask them, who do you think controlled the global price of oil for the longest period in history? Most people will assume it's Saudi Arabia or OPEC. It's not true. The Railroad Commission in 1919 could set proration rates, which told operators around the state of Texas, here is the percentage of your maximum that you can produce out of all of your wells. So if you have a well that could produce 100 barrels a day, I may set proration levels at 70%, which means you can only produce 70 barrels a day. And by doing that, the Railroad Commission controlled the the production in the entire state of Texas. And by doing so, they controlled the global price of oil from the mid-1920s all the way up until 1953. Wow. Sorry, sorry, 1973. I was born in 1975, so just two years before I was born. What happened was in the Middle East oil embargo, the Railroad Commission set all of its uh, proration levels at 100%. 
produce as much as you can. And they stayed there, there ever since. And that's when Saudi Arabia slash OPEC took over controlling oil prices. But for nearly 50 years, the Railroad Commission had the single strongest position in controlling the price of oil for nearly 50 years. Really cool history. Anyway, back to your question, Patrick. We continue to get more and more responsibility for everything related to oil. You know, how you drill a well, how you build a pipeline, disposal processes, completion reports, everything. And that all the way to today. And, and so during all that time, we got all the responsibility for oil. The responsibility for trains went away because either market conditions changed or regulation of, of how it was done changed. All responsibilities for trains today exist with Department of Transportation and just no one ever changed the name. <laughs> there was a bill two legislative sessions ago to change the name to the Texas Energy Commission. And it was a, a bill in the Texas House. It's, it would be a constitutional amendment. And I'm a supporter of that. I'd like to see us change the name so the people of the state know what we're doing. Yeah, when I first moved here 13 years ago, I've been in oil and gas for 20-some years. I've been coming to Houston for business for the entire time. Um, but I knew a little bit of the history of the Railroad Commission. But I, I decided to Google it one day because, like, there has to be a deeper story. And, and it's great to hear you tell the exact same story because it's such a cool piece of history. <laughs> so I didn't lie. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we're fact-checking right now. Yeah, we're like fact-checking right now. We need a fact-checker, Doug. <laughs> just made that up. All right, so the Railroad Commission now has responsibility not just for the production of hydrocarbons in the state of Texas, but literally everything that that evolves around moving those hydrocarbons, making sure that it's done safely, making sure you look out for the, the health, safety, and environment for the people that live in Texas. Can we touch on that a little bit? Because it's, it's a much bigger responsibility than just monitoring oil wells. It is. Now, to make sure people do understand this, I don't have responsibility for refineries. That's that's outside of our scope. Refineries, the only Texas responsibility for those is TCEQ on air permits, and it's kind of in conjunction with the EPA. But yeah, to your point, Mark, from the time an oil well is drilled to the time it begins to produce to the time that that goes into a pipeline and that pipeline itself, how it's constructed and operated to wherever that pipeline ends. I mean, all of that value chain from the time it's produced to the time it begins its first processing is the Railroad Commission. And while in general, that's a fairly basic set of things. The, you know, you, what are all the things that we are, that we, we need to protect? I mean, groundwater is probably the biggest one, right? And it could be, when I say groundwater, it could be just, just below the surface, even on the surface down to the water table, you know, where people are, people's water wells are. So making sure that an oil well that goes through that zone uh, doesn't contaminate the, the water and it is a big deal. And we, we, it's one of our key areas we look at, and, and we, in fact, our Rule 13, well bore integrity, one of the biggest reasons, the biggest premises behind that rule is making sure that groundwater is protected. You know, on the surface, when there's when there's operations that could that could potentially affect an area, you know, due to a release of some kind, then we are also monitoring that. Certainly when there's communities around and, you know, Houston is no stranger to this. Uh, we're you're sitting right now for those who are international, you know, there are, there are oil wells and gas wells near people's homes. And so when, when that operation's going on and people are drilling, if there's something that comes out, you know, there can be hydrogen sulfide in these wells, which everyone, your listeners probably know is a is highly toxic substance. So that has to be monitored and managed very closely. So yeah, really all. And once again, through the pipelines, how pipelines are tested to make sure that their integrity levels are high anywhere along that, that point, we are monitoring. I say monitoring. We're, we have very specific rules about how operators are supposed to monitor that. If there's ever a spill, they're supposed to notify us immediately. We participate in not we we help evaluate how they're going to clean up, how they test, making sure that, that full remediation is done. Look, nobody's perfect, and in an, in an operation the size of Texas, there are little spills every year, and some of them are small, you know, five barrels. But they'll notify us. I spilled five barrels of oil today. Our guys will go out, look at the remediation site. What they dug up will we'll require tests to prove that everything was cleaned up effectively and everyone's okay. 
first thing I had to report working offshore was a busted transfer line. We were transferring salt water. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. And I didn't think anything of it. We were in the ocean. We spilled it. You know, all right, fine. We'll change out the hose and go up. But it was, I mean, it's a big deal. You still yeah. have to report it. You spilled salt water into the ocean. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a, that, and that's a, you know, I mean, salt water, especially on land can actually be a pretty Absolutely. detrimental set, right? You, people don't realize how much vegetation you can kill uh, with salt water. So yeah, we, we have a very specific responsibility that, that look, anything that could get out and cause any sort of damage from the oil well or the pipeline, we are there to, to make sure operators are doing everything they can to prevent that. And in the cases where there are issues that they're cleaning it up and managing it in a way that there's no long-term damage. And and our track record is very, very good. I mean, you look across the state, there are, even going back you know, 30, 40 years, there's very few instances where there was any sort of long-term impacts. And we're very proud of that. Yeah. And the other thing I think that y'all do is so cool is y'all are also responsible for notifying the public. If something mm-hmm. happens, y'all are the first one to get out and say, this is what's going on. This is what the facts are. This is what you need to do. That's a lot of responsibility too. It is. And it's hard to do. You know, we live in an age today where people get their information in a lot of very complex ways. I mean, used to between the newspaper and the television news cycle and a couple other places, even phone calls. I mean, there was there was a few ways. Now it's, oh, no, no, I get all of my information via Twitter. Well, I get all of mine via Facebook. I get all of mine watching, you know, cable news network. I mean, there's so many different ways. And, you know, people are we're, we're sort of programmed to only pay attention to the specific information we want to get. And that it's harder and harder to inform the public of, of anything. But well, the old field, it's, it's a phone call. It's a, it's a text message. When something happens on a rig or mm-hmm. a pipeline or a site, you're telling your buddies, you know, this is going on. And sure. But how do you, now, how do you tell a, um, a, a big community, for example, we just had this issue down in Missouri city. Uh, there was a, an oil, a oil well blowout down there and it didn't actually affect anything, but there was some H2S, not enough to be toxic to anybody, but enough to, H2S smells just awful. I mean, it will make you sick, just the smell of it. And the question came up, well, what if it had been toxic levels? I mean, how do you let this entire area of homes know and make sure every homeowner there is informed that they need to evacuate? And we have protocols to do that. We normally work through the local HSC, local um, hazmat, hazardous response groups in the, in the counties. But in real emergency response areas, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's challenging because you could, you could do everything you can and still someone, I'm, they just weren't paying attention. And right. it, it's really, um, it is a big responsibility. Yeah. Now that I think about it that way, then that means the Railroad Commission also has to be looking at things like new communication technologies, new use of social media, because that might be the tool that you need in that particular toolbox. Yeah. And I'll tell you, there's a, there are plenty of areas where we need to improve, and that's one of them. When we talk about, if you ask me, hey, Ryan, you know, talk about the level of engagement between the public and the Railroad Commission. I would say it's abysmally low. I mean, people don't even know what we do, much less how we're doing it. And, you know, in an industry that represents not in in terms of its direct jobs and salaries and then also more broadly all of the ancillary jobs, you know, the guy who owns the hotel in South Texas and all of his customers, oil field workers. I mean, this is a third of our state's economy. And the fact that the, the people of this state elect the regulators is a really powerful thing. Like most people don't realize, wow. So if I don't like the way regulation is done in this state, I have the power to change that. It's not like these are gubernatorial appointees or senatorial appointees or just career government bureaucrats. These guys work for me directly. And yet no one knows what we do. I mean, literally less than 10% of the population of Texas knows that the Railroad Commission is the primary regulator of oil and gas activity. And, and it, that's a miss. And so, yeah, you know, it's it's something that I'm re- I've been in my three years of trying to wrap my hands around. How do I get more engaged with people so that when there is a question, you know, hey, why is this pipeline here? Or why did they block off this street? Or why did I smell this funny smell? Or why is this well, this drilling rig doing this thing? Or why is that thing venting? Man, call us. 
hopefully someone is there to answer your question and engage with you so you feel good about what's happening in this state because it's so important to us. Yeah, and especially this younger generation, younger workforce that's coming in, they don't use conventional media at yeah. all. They don't read the newspaper. They don't read magazines, right? So things like the podcast, it's a great way for you to help further y'all's reach a little yeah. bit. So, so maybe we can get your phone to ring a couple more times. But yeah, yeah, and social media, it's whoever's, you know, talking the loudest the most often. That's the message that you're going to resonate with. And it may not be the official Right. I, I mean, if you look at the uh, the gas shortage that we had in, right after Hurricane Harvey, yeah. it was you know completely fabricated, but it ended up being gas shortages at the pump because of all the Perception. fear. That, yeah, it yeah. Was, well, it was a self fulfilling prophecy, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and you're right. It's it's funny how a little bit of information can be so dangerous when it does, when you don't have the right context for it. And to your point, you know what we've seen. You think about the days of, of uh, how old are you? Thirty four. 34. So I'm 43. You know, I can remember growing up and mom and dad watched the evening news and here's, you know, Walter Cronkite or any of the sort of the, the sort of the big name anchors and they would get on, they would say the news. Here's what happened today. And they'd make sure to give enough context. It was kind of like their responsibility as a member of the media was to give accurate information to the people. It wasn't usually sensationalized. There wasn't a lot of opinion on it. It was done in a, in a caring tone and efficiently, but those days are gone. Everything has an opinion and it's, uh, you know, whether you're a Mike, an MSN, MSNBC or a Fox news person, it's all commentary. It's very little facts. And, and now somebody can get on social media and, and take a video of themselves and a video of an oil well in their backyard, put whatever kind commentary on it they want and it can go viral and five million people see that video and you're like wait a minute that that was all wrong information well it was the facts as that person saw them and that's what we compete with today it's a really well and i'm surprised at what level it, it a few years ago i got to go to a wedding up in dc and all the at the reception it was mostly young speech writers young policymakers that were attached to the the democrat party up there and we started talking about oil and gas and fracking was big at that time and i'm i ended up drawing a well diagram on a napkin showing them where the reservoir was where the water table is and patrick is a dork you were (laughs) (laughs) and then i'm even i'm even being honest i was like there's a possibility of methane creep and that could get into the water table but they knew the talking points about fracking and and the how it's damaging the water table and, and things like that but that's all they knew and i i assumed at that level in politics that they were more educated than the average person but it's you get that high level information, you run with it. Yeah, that's right. Well, and at the end of the day, if, if you're in the media, right? I mean, heck, you guys too. Your your interest in this show is to is to get as many people to download it as possible, right? So, if I only focused on just that interest, what I would do is I would try to tell the most sensational things, have the most sensational headlines, because that will get the most clicks. You know, railroad commissioner Ryan Sitton admits blah 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 blah. <laughs> oh, that's going to get more clicks than Ryan Sitton on the show. And so you, I'm not faulting them. It's just that folks in media, that's what they're trying to do. So I don't need to understand a lot of information to write a sensational headline. In fact, to some degree, I can write a more sensational story if I don't know all the facts. Right. And yeah. I will do a small little correction here. It's actually not how we monetize the podcast on purpose. Uh, okay. So we monetize by getting sponsors that want to get brand recognition. Okay. So it's not about downloads and sensational. It's one of the things that makes we us We care different. about every We actually care. <laughs> and, and we actually- Well, to your point, they, they want accurate information out there because good brand recognition comes with a good show, not just sensationalism. So that's a- yeah, and, and when we make mistakes, we come back and admit it fully, right? So this is nice. all about us trying to get the truth out there because the truth tells the story by itself. Sure. So I want to kind of circle back around. I want to explore the Railroad Commission a little bit further because it's a much more complex organization than even people in our techs understand. So y'all also touch things like mining. We do. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, yeah, so coal mining, right? Which is why the Texas Energy Commission would have been a good name if it had been changed. Yeah, if you if you operate a coal mine, we have a whole what we call service mining division that, that – 
from how you run that mine to the biggest piece of it is, you know, there, there is certainly impacts. I mean, you, you, someone's doing surface mining, you're going to see it, right? But there is from the very first day they start that mine, there is a plan for when they finish that mine that it is more beautiful than when they left it. That's awesome. I'll tell you, there's some super interesting stories. I saw one, I guess I can't say the company name, although I should because I brag on them, but I, I saw a, an image that somebody had done and it showed this super plush green rolling hill field with trees and everything else. And then next to it was this really brown sort of dead area. And it said, and the, the, it said before mining and after mining, you're like, man, that, that really looks bad. They're like, actually the, Brown picture was before we mined. <laughs> and so what they've done is they came in and mined and afterwards they made it made better, made it a whole lot better. And it's this, and it's this real picture. And if you look, there's a house or something in the picture that, that you can see the same frame of reference and how much, how much more beautiful, more plush it was after they had finished mining it. So, you know, once again, the day that mine starts, even though it may be a 50 year mine, there's a plan for what it's going to be like to, to be reclaimed. And they even have to put up bond money to make sure that if for some reason along the way they go out of business, the state has the money to put that mine back into a better condition than when they started. But it. major project like that, that, that takes a, it's, it gets a lot of community involvement. There's some people just adamantly against having something like sure. that in their community. And I know that because driving out you know, by my mom's house in the Hill country, they want to put a new quarry in nearby and yeah. there are billboards. People are fighting this quarry. They just don't want it. But, uh, and we've had saltwater remediation companies come on and we've seen those pictures. This is sure. what it looked like before. This is what it looked like during the spill. And then after we cleaned it up, it's more lush and green than, than even before, which yeah. it's, but it's, it's perception. It's like, no, mines are ugly. Mines are dirty. Oil wells are invariably going to spill oil and gas and everything else in our community. So we don't want them. Yeah. So Ryan, I got to ask you, so that I, I love that idea with the bonds being put up for the mines. Uh, Norway does that for decommissioning their wells. All that money it takes to decommission those uh, production platforms is already sitting there, right? Yeah. Waiting for the future. Do we do the same thing? We with- do. If you want to start an oil company today, Mark, you have to go and get a P5 from the Railroad Commission, which is basically a license to operate. And when you drill, your, and you'll have to get a permit to drill a well. But to get that permit, you'll have to have a performance bond with us. That ba- It is for one well, $25,000. Because in general, it costs us somewhere between, you know, depending on the depth and the complexity, you know, anywhere from 7000 to 25000 or $30,000 to plug a well. So we say, look, if you're going to drill a drill well, you got to have a performance bond. Interestingly enough, most of the wells in the state are operated by large companies who they, you know, one well being plugged is not a financial burden for them. And so what we find is the area where we end up using that or, or, or Tapping into that bond money most is is the smaller not the not the one well operators but it's the guys that have like between ten and fifty wells or or, or the ones under ten so it's those small individuals that have a few wells but they put up bond money. Some people you hear talk about the fact that well wait a minute but we've got this huge backlog of like wells that are shut in but need to be plugged and so if once again that operator goes bankrupt. Let's use an example. Let's say you had 10 wells. Uh, you put up your performance bond, which for 10 wells is, I think, $50,000, or nine wells would be $50,000. Put up a performance bond, you go out of business. And turns out some of those wells are more expensive. Well, what we, we have this sort of aggregate pool of fines and fees we get from industry, and we use other fees that we from industry to pay to plug those wells. But we still have to plug them, and they're out of, our, out of the nickels that we got from industry at that point. One of the the question is, well, how did, if, if you have enough money to plug all the wells being drilled today, how did we end up with this huge backlog? Well, most of the wells on our list were wells that were drilled like in the sixties and seventies and earlier back before we had these performance bonds and they, we didn't collect the dollars then. And so we've got this kind of, you know, I, I say the number of days, a few thousand, what sounds like a lot, but considering there's hundreds of thousands of wells in the state, it's really not that big, but we, we are working that list down now and the legislature has been funding us to, to make sure that we get to keep dollars that we collect from industry to go plug 
plug those wells. And then, correct me if I'm wrong here, but after that well is capped, after that well is plugged, y'all still monitor those wells? No, once it's been, so for your listeners that don't, what is a plugged well? I mean, essentially, imagine a piece of pipe going in the ground, right? This is overly simplistic model, but I've, I've drilled a hole, you know, a mile deep, and I've put a, a mile of pipe in, and at some point I had oil flowing up to that pipe, and I'm done doing that. What I do is I pump the thing full of cement. Right, all the way down the bottom and even all the way back as much as I can around the edge of the pipe. So the hole and the pipe are all full of cement. There's nothing to monitor once so it's that's done. done at that it's, point. Yeah, it's plugged yeah. and abandoned as we call it. So now, unless somebody, sometimes there could be an issue, and then we would go out and look at it. But no, we don't typically continue to monitor them after it's plugged. I got fussed at one time with a guy that was actually in charge of Baker Hughes Well Abandonment Group. And I called it concrete instead of cement and I had a 30 minute lecture. <laughs> you know, I, I make that mistake. I actually made that mistake just not a couple of weeks ago and said concrete says cement. And, and you know, one of the oil field guy with me is like, are you an idiot? Like, no, I'm not. Sorry. I'm missing I still shorthand it in CMT and just. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the Railroad Commission has responsibility to protect the citizens of Texas, right, from, from a health and safety point of view. You also have responsibility to make sure that the operators are operating their, their well safely and that those hydrocarbons are being transported properly, and you all touch mining. But kind of when I look at the bigger picture, it's really an organization to make sure that the, the people that live in our state don't have to worry about anything. I mean, you're you're that in the background making sure nothing bad happens. And if it does, you already have risk mitigation plans in place and everything to to minimize the impact that it may have on anybody. I mean, that's and by the way, that's not unique to oil and gas or the Railroad Commission. That's the function of regulation. When regulation is done right, what that does is it gives an uneducated community, whoever that community is, confidence that whatever it is is regulated is safe. Did you know I'll give you a quick story, the birth of regulation. In 1870, I believe, the steamship Sultana is sailing up the Mississippi River. And at that time, everything was powered with steam boilers, locomotives, steamships, whatever. Sailing up, and, and I'm going to get my facts wrong here. You can Google this or your listeners can. But steamship Sultana is, is sailing up the Mississippi River and one of its boilers explodes. And I think it killed 1,200 people, basically two-thirds of the people on the ship. Now, keep in mind, this is before social media and telephones and everything else, but just through the early print news, the the word got out that the steamship had exploded. What do you think happened to the steamship industry? I mean, it was like no one would get on a death trap steamship, right? So the steamship industry, and specifically because of its boilers, says we got to do something because no one will use our boats anymore. I mean, maybe hauling wood is it, but the the personnel travel is going in the tank. So they get guess we have to have a set of standards. We have to have a set of rules that people know are not made by us. And the American Society of Mechanical Engineers was born that same year. That is such a yeah. cool story. And the fact that people don't, so I'm a, I'm a member of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers and they, they have a whole set of standards. And one of the standards today is the boiler and pressure vessel code. If you're going to build a boiler or a pressure vessel in the United States, you follow this code. Well, the very first code that the that ASME produced was the code for the trials of steam boilers came out in like 1890 or 1880 or something in response to this demand from industry to be regulated so that people would know that it was safe and you go all the way I mean everything from you know how we regulate you know the regulation of cars being constructed right Chevrolet and and Ford and they want people to know that their cars are safe so please regulate us airline industry no one will get on these planes if they think they're going to crash please regulate us healthcare industry no one will come in and see the doctor if they don't believe that he I mean, all of these things are regulated so that the individual citizen who doesn't have the expertise has confidence that it's safe and that if you're regulated if if people if you're if that's happening well then you're regulating fine where we see problems 
especially at the federal level, is when regulation is used as a political instrument. Yep. I'm trying to advance a particular agenda. The biggest one, regardless of your position on greenhouse gases, let's say somebody would say, I absolutely believe that greenhouse gases are the sole cause of global warming and are going to cause the oceans to rise and huge populations to be decimated, everything else. I don't believe them. I'm just saying if they did, I would say the way not to advance that agenda is, or the way to, to make that agenda not advance is to get the EPA to try to go out and regulate greenhouse gases out of existence. That is because now it's become, that's, that's not Congress setting policy. You're violating the three tenets of government, you know, a, a three tiered structure. No, you need, if, if you want to make those, let the, let the, let the Congress set the policy. It's our job as regulators to enforce the policy. And so that you see a lot of that at the federal level where people are using, because it's for the gridlock in, in Congress, people are using regulators as a way to, to advance a political agenda. And it's extremely negative. Very nonproductive. Actually, it, yeah. it turns the needle backwards. It right? absolutely does. One of our shows that our listeners don't know is coming out. We have the Oil and Gas Geopolitics podcast coming out. We have a professor up in Washington that's going to host that show. We're going to have to get you on that show because you can go really deep into how small political opinions – get pushed out and what is a regulatory agency now becomes a political hammer, yeah. which is, which is the opposite of what you want them to be. Well, especially in industry like the energy industry, you know, and a, a, to give an extra plug for your additional show, because I, I really am fascinated by the geopolitics of energy. That's arguably one of the reasons I got into this role. I mean, when you look at energy policy, people would think, who cares about energy policy? That's a dorky thing, right? I mean, arguably energy policy has had a more profound impact on the shape of the world and its current political geopolitical structure than any other policy we've had. I mean, even like short of maybe Cold War policy, I mean, nuclear policy, I mean, that maybe. And you say, well, how is that? A quick history lesson for the folks online. People don't realize in the 80s when we were in this huge Cold War battle with the Soviet Union, Reagan went to the Saudis and said, listen, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to pump up your oil production and absolutely tank the price of oil. Now, you may say, why did he want to do that? Because Russia, even back then, their primary revenue source as a nation, what fueled the Soviet economy was sale of oil. Well, when the Saudis pumped so much oil in the market that the price of oil went down to $6 a barrel, the Soviet Union basically went bankrupt. And eventually the Soviet Union collapsed because they couldn't support their infrastructure. So the Cold War ended. I mean, there's a lot of components of this. I think you could know, argue Reagan and Gorbachev's leadership as individuals, certainly the, the sort of geopolitical lack of tolerance for the Cold War scares, everything else. But the fact that Russia didn't have any money was one of the biggest components. And it was because of energy policy at that time. And so you, there's that, that still goes on today. I mean, make no mistake when when Russia is agreeing, for example, in the recent OPEC negotiations to curtail its production, to drive oil prices up, that was absolutely because they got to fund their social programs, too. It's so funny, Ryan. So on our other show years ago, I talked about this exact same thing. So I was in the Marine Corps when Reagan first came in office. Okay. I went from working for a fighting force that was using still World War II equipment to being the most equipped and trained fighting force on the planet because of the exact thing. What Reagan did that was genius, instead of trying to worry about mutually sure destruction, he goes, how are they paying for that stuff? And he yanked the rug out from under him. It was political genius. I'll also say that geopolitics and, and energy as a whole drives prosperity either one way or the other more than anything else for a nation. So yeah, we need to come back and revisit that. I was going to say, all right, so we're getting you know, we're, we're <laughs> met a very high Wrong level. podcast. I, I want to pull it back in. So okay. we're talking about regulation, I, yeah. on, I was looking on your website and you talk about you know being able to turn around permits safely and as quickly as possible mm-hmm. and to give our audience some more actionable things. So when they're issuing or they're requesting a permit to, to drill a well, you know, what are the red flags that are going to get those permits denied that they need to make sure they've got all their, you know, eyes, eyes, dot, uh, T's crossed. 
these days, there aren't a lot of things that are going to flag it. The, the, probably the biggest thing that, that causes a permit to get held up is if the field in which they're asking for a permit or and the geography, so the location, don't line up and it's not clear, right? So, hey, we think it's going into this field and that, that then subscribes to these field rules. And our guys go, wait a minute. That that doesn't jive with your location on the map, then that thing gets held up. In fact, oftentimes it's going to have to get. Eh, so does have to get withdrawn, but causes a lot of consternation. That's that's probably the one thing is now these that doesn't happen that often anymore. But back is it, in is it confusion on their part, are they trying to push the bounds um, of what their field well? What is, you, is, you know, keep in mind you got a lot of especially the permutation. You got a lot of stacked fields, right? right so yeah. which which depth are you going to? And it can be easy if you're not very clear. I'm going to this depth into this field, which which corresponds with these field rules and that's at this location yes all those jive can be easy like oh well actually i was in this location i said i was going to this depth but that depth would have been this field i'm only off by you know 1500 feet and no that that triggered us thinking of a different set of field rules and so your you know your lease line spacing isn't right i mean there's there's nuances that can easily get snagged that was a bigger problem a few years ago than it is today most people kind of figured that out but back when we were oh my gosh there's another level and another level you know all these stacked pays were really causing a lot of issues Uh, We also changed our rules a little bit to to have UFT rules, which kind of made some more broad rules that helped to help streamline this a little bit too. But that was, like I said, I don't think that happens as much anymore, but that was an issue. Gosh, what else is a red flag? I know I shifted gears. We were talking. Yeah, Gorbachev. And now I'm talking about (laughs) field rules. You know, I can't think of another one off the top of my head. These, I would say that, that. That really just making sure that the information is accurate, right? It can be easy to kind of plug something in, trying to get something rushed through. But these days, in fact, I just I heard we were in conference yesterday, and our our executive director reported that they have a average, I think, permit time now of like two point seven days. So in general, things are moving really smoothly. I, I, most people are not talking about problems unless it's with a really complex well, you know, something that isn't what we normally would permit. And so it's kind of got to get into a special condition, which they know that they know that going in. So I don't think permits is an area of a big consternation. Yeah. So we're getting to a point where it's needed to sort of got so much more to talk about. I know let's list one thing at a time. So Ryan, we're at the point where we're at our red wing HS knee tip of the day. You got a tip for our audience. I do. Now you, when you asked earlier, you're talking about a safety tip and I was going to give a health tip, you know, the couple of basic things that we forget about, but it's so important in terms of, work like ours. If you go into a refinery every day, you go into a drilling rig every day, you go out to your pipeline or go to two things that we do. Oh yeah, you need to drink water and you get enough sleep. Yeah, duh. That is not that big a deal. The average American gets something like, average American adult gets something like six and a quarter hours of sleep a night. And most experts will tell you that the average American adult needs upwards of seven and a half hours a night. And you may say, well, what difference does an hour, hour and a half make? You know, got up to work out, whatever. Man, sleep is the single biggest. I mean, there are a number of studies now that shows that lack of sleep or long-term small amounts of sleep deprivation lead to Alzheimer's. They certainly lead to, lead to, to reduce visual acuity. You know, more like in an acute way, they your decision processing really just for overall health and then, then safety on the job, getting enough sleep and then drinking enough water, especially about to get in the summertime. Man, you just, you know, we get more, if I remember this correctly, it's a couple of years old. I think the biggest number of injuries we get during the summertime in the oil and gas industry is dehydration and over oh, and heat exhaustion. Yeah, it's, it's, it. not, it's not, you know, a burn or something else. And those can be really, those can be really dangerous injuries. I mean, I know people who have had, you know, heat stroke and it's, it can be debilitating. It can have long-term impact. So going into the summertime, I'd say get plenty of sleep and drink plenty of water and 
those those will prevent more injuries than almost anything else we can do. Yeah, that's an awesome, awesome. tip. And, and, and you weren't on the show, but I think that's right in line with we had Laura Putnam on, and she is a uh, you know health expert in in the corporate world, and that's right in line with what she was saying. So. Yeah. So awesome. Ryan, well, I didn't know that, so that was original for yeah. me. <laughs> so Ryan, see that Red Wing bag on the floor over there somewhere? Somewhere. Oh, it's over here. Yeah, it's over there. I see it. That's the Red Wing offshore bag. It has become a cult item. People offer us ungodly amount of cash for that. Really? We don't. We we thought about going to send them China to have it reverse engineered, but we decided not to. Okay. Reach only, out to me. I'll sell mine. <laughs> <laughs> there's only one way to win one other than buying Patrick's. <laughs> is that you go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information there. We give away one lucky bag winner a week. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. You so Red Wing too. doesn't sell those bags? Nope. That's just for our yeah. listeners. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. If you go to the HSNE website, uh, give us your email address. You'll find out the stuff that we're doing next. Which Patrick, I was negligent. We did the happy hour, first happy hour ever, and I forgot to send it out to our email list. We did. We had it here in in Houston. Yeah. And we have another one coming up at the end of April, April twenty fifth at WeWork in the Galleria, six to nine p.m. Go on our oil and gas HSE and you can get a link to it. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes because the event bite yeah. links are right. But if you want to come meet us live, sign up early. We uh, sold out last time. This one's going to sell it even quicker. If you want to find out what we're doing. Wait, 150 some odd people. 180. Was, yeah, that was huge. Yeah. If you want to find out what we're doing second, uh, go to Oil and Gas Global Network on LinkedIn. Sign up there. That's where we let everybody know. And I actually did let everybody know there about the happy hour. I mean, we're looking to try to do this once a month. It looks like WeWork sees the value in having 300 young all gas professionals show up at their place at one time and give away some free booze. Yep. Have a good time. Um, it's amazing how that works. Uh, yeah, it is amazing how that works. <laughs> Health, safety, environmental with booze. With I'll booze. be there. <laughs> so, Ryan, if people wanted to find out more about the Railroad Commission here in Texas, where should they go? Well, our website, we're easy to find. In fact, rather than give you the description, I would just Google Texas Railroad Commission is the easiest way to find it, or the actual web address. I think it's actually – It's kind of a complicated URL. It's actually rrc.texas.gov. So you can find it that way, but no one will remember that. So just right. Google us. It's easy to find us. Patrick. You can also go to you know, my personal website. So ryansitton.com is often the, the, the two are sharing information. But when it comes to the world of politics, you have to be very careful what is shared through our official site. It's got to be only official state business. So if there's commentary out there, I put that on my personal site so that people can, you know, hey, what are you doing? What are you working on? Well, okay, we'll talk about that over there. And we always have news stories linked to other areas that, that we think are interesting for people as well. That was going to be my next question people want to find out more about you personally so you have your own website patrick will put links in the show it's both the railroad commission and absolutely Ryan's and website. on your website i saw you did the uh energy minute is that a reoccurring thing that you're going to do doing, so in fact that- um you know the every day and it's it's kind of expanding across texas and not to you know plug somebody else's program but r- regular talk radio they are people are like hey we you know everyone in the state's kind of aware of it so i do an energy minute which you, is you can plug somebody else's yeah we're, we're very okay well this is everywhere share. okay in fact there's a um the shale magazine i don't know if you've ever seen shale magazine they're producing this and then they're sending it out through i think iHeartRadio to all the to a lot of different talk shows so i think it's in you know in several states on different I mean, several uh cities on different radio stations and it's you know i come on and i'm usually on for about 45 seconds but it, i send it to them at the end of the night then they run it all the next day and you hear it's like this is texas railroad commissioner ryan Sutton with your energy minute i'll give a quick couple of news stories tell them what crude prices did the day before what natural gas prices did the day before and i'm gone and that's, that's awesome they run it all day long so that people kind of get a quick update yeah, you ever think about saying something really silly just to see if they'll go with it? <laughs> I have. Don't do it. I don't know. Well, listen, you know, you, I, I 
tend to be a little risky when it comes to, hey, let's do something creative. So we'll see. Maybe, uh, maybe. But right, there's just so many cool things going on in the energy space that often I can talk about things that really are kind of like, what? And then, oh, I mean, that's actually related. Yeah, I can tell now we'll get Ryan back on like three or four different shows. Give him a yeah, tech podcast, a geopolitics <laughs> podcast, industry leaders podcast. I'm going to get him to commit for a 45-second spot daily from now. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Now we're really putting the push, push the Bennett. All right, so and as far as events, we talked about the WeWork Happy Hour. we got OTC coming up. We'll be there. Entire OGG and clan will be there as press. If you're going, uh, hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to meet you in person. BPMS 150. BPMS 150. We'll be there as press as well. And if you want to find out about these events and more, go sign up for my newsletter. It's free. We take all the oil and gas events, put them in your news in your inbox once a month, and give away free stuff sometimes, like OTC passes. So if you heard this, you missed it because they went out last month. Yeah. But if you're hosting an event, too, let us know. If it's not on our radar, let's we'll yeah, or if you want Patrick and I to come out and talk to your group, your HS group, your operations group, your gun club, whatever, let us know. We share the details of that too. Ryan, nice. man, this has been awesome. I literally could have stayed on the microphone with you another two hours. We definitely will get you back on some other shows. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm glad to do it. It's great to visit with you guys and enjoy the conversation. Yeah. You ready to get out of here, Patrick? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. All right, Ryan, what's the craziest thing you've seen in the field? Yeah, probably the craziest thing I've seen when I was one time was in a refinery and um, there was a tank, right? And one of one of the guys that worked for me at the time was out inspecting this tank and he says, and he finds this little like one inch line that runs off the side of the tank and runs underground. And what often people do when they're inspecting is they'll just kind of draw that that on the image, draw that out and say, you know, I, I don't know where that goes. For whatever reason, he's like, you know, I'm really doing a thorough job. I want to figure out where this goes. So he goes and he gets a like a, a shovel and he digs up around and figures out it only goes like a foot under the underground or a few inches and then starts just heading off this way. Well, this is a refinery that's in an area where there are houses nearby the plant. So he goes out there with like a, a, a sophisticated metal detector and he tracks this line, this little one inch line that goes off the side of this tank inside this refinery, goes underground underneath the refinery fence and it pops up by this house outside the, the house. They figure out that somebody had installed this line on this tank back before there was fencing around the refinery and for 30 years had been fueling up their cars from this refinery's <laughs> gas tank wow. at their house. No one had noticed. This is one of the best stories there. That was, that was a good one. Yeah.